And there's a reason for that because the subject that we're going to be dealing with today is going to bring a lot of tension, I think. And tension usually uh, creates itself right around the neck area and uh, rises up to the brain. You know, it's interesting for the past several Sundays, I've been amazed at how God in this book of Genesis, in this uh, verse-by-verse study we've been going through and chapter-by-chapter has been so amazingly wonderful in talking about there is nothing too wonderful for God. Nothing too wonderful for God. And these messages so far have been on an upbeat. They've been really positive. They've been inspiring. They have talked about the wonder and the amazing things that God wants to bring into the lives of those of us who believe and who put our faith in Jehovah, in God, in Christ, and how wonderful he intends for that life to be. And now all of a sudden, in Genesis 18, beginning with the verse that we're going to be studying today, all of a sudden he begins to deal with his wrath. From the wonder of God to the wrath of God. And it seems to us as we sort of study the characteristics and and we sort of grapple with our understanding of God, how can God be so wonderfully amazing yet so wrathful at the same time? For the passage that our pastor, Brother Andy, just read is a passage that describes the wrath or the judgment of God. For the judgment of God is a reality, and the justice of God is a part of the characteristic of God. God is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He is a caring God. He is a kind God. He is a patient God. He is also a God of justice. And because he is all of those wonderful things, he is also a God of wrath. And those both characteristics are, 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 are balanced out in who God is and how we should conceptualize the reality of God. For God in the Old Testament is still the same God in the New Testament as he is today. God has not changed in his characteristics or in his nature. He is a God who wants wonderful things for us in that for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And yet on the other side, we're going to see there is a judgment that will come to those who reject Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. And we must prepare for the divine judgment of God. For as Pastor Andy read just earlier, if God did not spare the angels who rebelled against him in heaven and cast them into hell, if God did not spare those who rejected the message of Noah and died in that judgment, Genesis 6, and if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then I ask you, why should we expect God to spare America of the judgment that we deserve? The judgment of God is coming. And if there has ever been, I think, a a series of messages that has disturbed my heart more than at any other time, it's this mini-series of messages about these divine principles about the divine judgment of God. To be quite honest with you, I have, over the three decades of preaching and teaching, I have spoken and taught or preached very little on the judgment of God. And there's a reason for that. I think the reason for that is because those of us who are Christ followers should be 
disturbed by this judgment in the sense that those who reject Christ are going to fall under the judgment seat of Christ. It should be disturbing to us. It shouldn't be something that we amen or applaud or shout hallelujah to. It should be something that so disturbs us that it moves us and compels us to an activity or to an action to make sure and to ensure that those that we love and know and associate with and work next to and recreate with and go to school with escape the judgment that is soon coming. For judgment is coming. There are some of us, probably in this room, I hope not very many, who would more than likely want to deny this reality of the judgment of God. And the honest truth is most of us are not looking forward to the judgment, even though we're saved, because we know that when we stand before Jesus, who is the judge, who sees and knows all, we are going to be exposed, we are going to be revealed for the secret things that go on in our minds and our hearts and our lives. You know those things that, that we think and feel and say and do that we think no one else is, is aware of and no one else is attentive to and that, that we can get by with it, we haven't been caught, we haven't been exposed. On judgment day, for the believer and the unbeliever, there is a day of accountability. There is a day of reckoning in which all of us are going to stand before Jesus the judge who knows it all. And we will be exposed for the hypocrites that we really are. Our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And we are wicked to the core of our hearts. Every single one of us, including me. And on Judgment Day, we will stand before Jesus and all will be revealed. Those secret thoughts, those secret feelings, those secret actions, those things that you did that you thought were in private are now revealed for who you really are. And were it not for the grace of God, you would not be saved at all. There are two types of judgment the Bible talks about. And so let's talk about very quickly as we set the table for the study that we're going to be dealing with for the next few Sundays. And I'm going to encourage you not to miss. And some of you are going to want to, tend to, want to miss this because who wants to talk about judgment? And these are some difficult passages, but they're passages that we must make this journey together. And so I'm going to set the table this morning and take a little extra time to be able to make sure that, that we have the foundation that we need. When I was a child, I, I was in Brazil. I grew up in South America, Brazil. And, and uh, we had a missionary residence that was provided by the International Mission Board by your Lighting Moon Christmas offering. And our home had what we called a guest room. And in that guest room was also a bathroom. It was the only room that had a, its own bathroom. And, uh, and I, it was my room. Now, that, that sounds great to have the only one that had the large, one of the largest rooms and the only, its own bathroom kind of like a master suite, but I had to give that up every time there were missionaries that were coming through town because, you know, to save money, missionaries, instead of staying in a hotel, would stay with us. And I gave up that room quite a bit. But what I was taught as a child is when we had guests, we had to take the time to set the table. And my mother made sure that when we set the table, we set the table right. Forks go on one side, you know, knives and spoons go on one side, the napkin goes here, the glass goes here. And so we helped her set the table for the meal that was about to be presented. And it's important here in this study 
that we set a proper table for the spiritual food that we are about to digest from the Word of God in regard to His judgment. And so I want to take the time to do that today. We're going to get to our passage, but I want to go with two passages as we begin this series about the two types of judgment that we can expect from the Lord. The first one is found, take your Bible, it's not on the screen, just leave that up, Clyde, if you would, to Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Romans 14, verse 10. There is a judgment of believers. There is a judgment of believers. Now, when Christ returns and that final judgment, we call the, white great, the great white throne judgment, actually takes place, there's going to be a separation between the wheat and the weeds or the sheep and the goats or the saved and the unsaved. And those of us who were saved, those of us who were the sheep, those of us who were the wheat are going to stand before Jesus as the judge. And we're going to give an account of the lives that we lived, and we're going to give an account of what we have invested in what we have been entrusted into the kingdom that God bestowed upon us. In Romans 14, 10, it said, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all, notice it said, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's speaking to believers, for it is written, I will live says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to Christ. You're going to give an account as a believer to Christ, to the life that you lived, and what you did with what God entrusted to your care, whether you were a good and faithful steward or not you'll be rewarded. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one last verse. These are not all of the verses that regard this subject, but these are two that I want to make sure that we set the table with this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're not there, say, I'm about to. All right. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, at home with the Lord in heaven or away from heaven, we're here. We make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. For we must all, notice, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a judgment of believers. Now Romans 8 says, For there is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith. We put our faith in Christ. We are following him. God doesn't demand perfection from us. But he demands faithfulness from us. And we will be judged according to our faithfulness. And we will stand before Christ and give an account for every word that we have said, every look that we have made, every thought that we have thought, everything that we have heard, every feeling that we have felt, every action that we have done. We will stand before God giving an account unto him. We won't be condemned to hell. 
But we will either be rewarded or denied rewards based upon our faith and our fellowship in Christ. The judgment of believers. So I pose this question to you. Is this study not relevant for us who are in Christ to prepare for the divine judgment seat of Jesus? Doesn't it behoove us? Isn't, uh, uh, isn't it of interest to us that we study and understand how we as Christ followers ourselves might prepare for the coming of Christ? Now, the second judgment is found in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Take your Bibles and turn there. Revelation 20, verse 11. If you want to know more about what this passage says, come to my class tonight at 5.30. Thank you, Mike. This is the passage we're going to be dealing with actually tonight. The judgment seat of Christ is called the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20.11. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're not there, say, I'm on my way. It's the last book of the Bible. It's not hard to find. Revelation 20, very close to the end of the New Testament. There's only two more chapters after this, so just turn to the maps and go the other way and you'll find it. Revelation 20, verse 11. Are you ready? Now, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ has already happened. Okay? Now this is the great white throne judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment that will end life on this planet as we know it. Then I saw a great white throne and him, the him is Jesus, who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice, all of the dead whether they have died at sea and been buried at sea or have been buried on the planet. Their graves have given up their lifeless bodies. They have come back to life. And now the unsaved are standing before Jesus on the great white throne judgment seat. He's sitting on the throne and all of these unbelievers are there. Just a sea of humanity as far as the eye can see. They're all there. All, anyone who has been given life and who has breathed life and who has died is now there, standing before Christ on the great white throne. And these people who are in this sea of humanity, of lostness and depravity and wickedness and, and, and who are unsaved are finally seeing this figure who is on the throne and they are horrified by what they see because they see the Jesus that they have rejected. The fact is, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is divine. He is who he claimed to be and they have not put their faith and trust in him. 
And they are standing in this sea looking up to Jesus and they are fearful of what is about to happen next. They know what's about to happen, but they're afraid of what is about to happen. And Jesus, in his compassion and his humility and his care and his love and in kindness, takes the first book, which is the book of of the law, and he reads from the book of the law the requirements that are necessary to be in the great cloud of witness here, those of us who were saved. And he reads the gospel. For salvation is by grace through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, provided through faith in the redemptive, atoning, sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, and those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And because they have put their faith, their belief, and their trust in Jesus, he died for their sins, and that grace is more than sufficient to cover them from their sin. You see, God's not asking for perfection from us who are up here, the saved, but only that we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And trust him to die for our sin because we're saved by grace through faith, and that is not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God. And they have not put their trust in Jesus, and their their sin is not covered by the grace that comes through the cross and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And he then reads from that book of the law, and that book of the law then talks about the righteousness then. If you're not saved by grace through faith, here's the law, here's the standard. And the standard, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you must then be perfect. And I ask you, anybody here perfect? Turn to your neighbor and say, aren't you perfect? Nobody's perfect. We are all sinners, Romans 3.23 And the wage of sin is death. And so all of them recognize they haven't haven't received Jesus and they haven't been saved by grace through faith. He's then going to open what we call the Lamb's Book of Life. And as he reads the Lamb's Book of Life, he reads then the names of those who have been written in that book by the blood of Jesus. And he reads from those names. And then he takes a third book and he opens a third book and he reads from that book the list of lost lives. People who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And along and in that book with each name are the deeds or the sins or the wickedness that they have committed. That's God's judicial system. It's a judicial system that is righteous. It's a judicial system that is just. It's a judicial system that is fair. And now all the evidence has been presented. And he passes sentence. Not because it brings him pleasure. Not because it makes him smile. Not because he's getting vengeance. Not out of vindication, but I think out of deep sorrow and regret. These people have not placed their faith and trust in him as their Savior, and now he must sentence them to all eternity in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. And they will then become recipients of all of their sins. And they will be judged, and they will be sentenced according to the degree or the various conditions of their sins. 
But I, I want you to be warned that even the smallest, minute lie, not covered by the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus on the cross, one lie makes a person a sinner and condemns them to hell. And while it is true, while the one lie will not merit, nor deserve, nor receive the same punishment in hell as the murderer, it doesn't matter because hell is hell. And fire is fire. And agony and pain and horror and, and, and all of the, the, the difficulty and the darkness and all that goes with hell is for the one lie as much as it is for the many lies. And torment, agony, pain, heartache is for everyone in the place the Bible calls the lake of fire, which is hell. That's the outcome for the unsaved. But there are two judgments. So because these judgments are reality and they are biblical, irrespective of how and irregardless of how we may choose to believe, it is biblical and the words of Jesus, you know, he talks more about hell than he does about heaven in his teachings. Just read the New Testament. And Jesus believed in the reality of hell. And the reality is there are many people today in many churches sitting in many pews or many chairs who do not believe that hell is a real place where real people go without Christ. And they are sadly mistaken. And I'm convinced that people that don't believe in a reality of hell well, more than likely not see the reality of heaven because how can you believe in a Jesus who died for sin to save us from hell if you don't believe in hell? <laughs> Pat and I were watching uh, yesterday um, a, a, a TV series uh, that was on Hallmark. And uh, i trying to remember the name of the series, but what was it? The Waltons. And... Uh, it was funny, there was a, a, a hellfire, hellfire damnation, you know, preacher coming to town in the Waltons. Anybody see that? And uh, he was a notorious evangelist, and he preached hellfire and damnation. And he wanted to, first thing he got into town, he wanted to go to the, you know, where everybody drank. And so he walked in there and started preaching, and people started scattering. And long story short, it's interesting that the Waltons... And the, the theme of the movie, or the little sitcom, they did not want to admit, nor do they see the necessity of declaring themselves to be sinners. And, and as we watched that, we, we were horrified by what we saw in the Waltons. Why would you be saved if you weren't a sinner? Praying to receive Christ as your Savior without acknowledging your sin is, I believe, a standard practice in many churches today. For unless we repent of sin, we will likewise perish. How can you trust a Jesus as your Savior without acknowledging and repenting of your sin? So there are consequences to sin for the unbeliever and consequences of sin for the believer, for we must all stand before God. So the question is, no matter what we are, believer or unbeliever, how do we prepare for divine judgment? Let's look at the text now, finally, very, very quickly in Genesis 18, beginning with verse 16. Abraham, if you remember, received a visit from three 
sojourners, three who were traveling by, and they stopped earlier on, as we saw in our study, happened to come by, not happened, but intentionally came by Abraham's tent. He was, had the flap open. He was sitting there in the cool breeze of the day, and he saw them coming. He ran out to meet them, and he fell on his face, recognizing that one of the travelers was none other than the Lord. And he offered his service to the Lord. And the Lord commanded him, go and prepare what you have said. And he went and prepared this incredible meal. And he himself served it. He set the table and served the Lord and the two angels. And at the conclusion of the meal, if you remember, there was an after-dinner conversation where the Lord then spoke to Abram so that also Sarah could hear. We heard it last week. He's saying, guys, there is nothing too wonderful for the Lord to do. You will have a child. And they marveled at the wonder of God, who in their way beyond their childbearing years, the power of God was going to overshadow their humanity, and they were going to bear a son, and they were going to call him Isaac, and it was through him that the Messiah would come. Incredible blessing. And the meal is over, and uh, they get up, to leave. Notice what happens. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Notice the meal was over. The message had been delivered and now they were going to continue their mission. Their mission was to come by Abraham's tent and to tell Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son named Isaac and he would be the heir and, and, and it would be through him that, 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 remember, the descendants would be as numerous as the stars and the grains of sand. It was through Isaac that this was going to happen and they were going to supernaturally become pregnant and, and so that was great. Now they were going to continue on their mission and they were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah for the specific purpose purpose of bringing judgment on that city. And Abraham, unaware of where they were heading, got up like a good host in his day, like you and I might do when someone comes to our home, we follow them out to their car, don't we? And we wave goodbye. And if, if, if you're a grandparent in my eldest son's home, my children, when they go out to see us off in the car, they like to run with the car as long as they can until we're out of sight. And so you know, Abraham's going with the three on the way. One's the Lord and these two angels. Now, it's customary to do this, and he's being a good host. The difference between what Abraham does and what is customary is he walks beyond what is natural and what is customary for a host to do. He's gone well beyond being just a good host. Why? He is traveling with them at a really incredible distance, going way beyond. Why? Because James 2 says that Abraham is a friend of God. And James is the only one in the Bible that you will find where God himself says that Abraham was his friend. Why does he call Abraham his friend? Because Abraham has made a resolve to walk in intimacy and closeness to the Lord. He is desirous of an intimate love relationship in which he and the Lord are walking side by side in an intimate connection, an intimate relationship where he is the friend of the Lord. He wants to walk with the Lord. Walking with the Lord. And I say to you that Abraham was prepared 
for the judgment that was coming because he was in a close relationship with the Lord. He was walking with the Lord. He had put his faith and his trust in the Lord, and he was following the Lord. And if you and I want to be prepared for the judgment that is coming, we, like Abraham, must, by faith, trust in Jesus and walk in intimacy with the Lord because the days that we live are evil days. And unless we are walking in close proximity to the Lord on a day-to-day intimate friendship level, we might forfeit some of our reward. So resolve to walk with God. Number two, recognize the work of God. Verse 17, interesting. The Lord said, did the Lord speak out loud or was the Lord speaking to himself? That's a debate among some of the scholars. I believe he spoke out loud. I believe he was speaking to the two angels, and he was speaking to them. And uh, it, it wasn't by accident, because like, if you remember when the Lord spoke to Abraham at the table, telling Abraham about Isaac and the promise that was coming, he knew that Sarah was listening, and he not only spoke to Abraham so that Abraham could hear, but he said it so that Abraham's wife... Sarah, who was back in the kitchen, got a little bit closer to hear what was going on because she heard her name. They're going to talk about me. And he spoke to Abraham knowing that Sarah would listen. God is speaking, I think, the Lord is speaking to these two angels knowing that Abraham, who's walking, I mean, as close as he can to the Lord, is going to hear the conversation. It's not accidental. It's very intentional. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You know, I don't think God hides anything that he's about to do to his, to, his, to his people. That's why he gave us this. So that's why he gave us this. This is God's opportunity for us so that as we study it and we grow in it, and if you want to, you need to come to Mike's class to learn more about theology or any of the other classes that I may have failed to mention. God doesn't want us not to know what's going to happen. He said many, 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 many times that judgment's coming. Why don't we believe it? And so he doesn't want to hide from Abraham what's about to happen. But notice it's interesting. Shall I hide from Abraham? Notice the words, what I'm about to do. What I am about to do. Who's going to do what's about to happen? Who? Who's going to do it? God. God is about to do it. And God doesn't want Abraham to be mistaken. What's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, God did it. Have you ever wondered when you saw something happen, how did that happen? What caused that? Who did it? Who's responsible? God is telling Abraham way in advance, what is about to happen? And he's saying to Abraham, I am responsible. I am about to do what I'm about to do. I'm about to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Blame me. I'm responsible. He wanted Abraham to recognize the activity and the work of God in the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It was important for Abraham to understand it was God's responsibility to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and to inflict that judgment. I'm here to tell you, it's not your job, it's not my job, it's not our job to bring judgment on anybody. Let me say that again. It's not our responsibility to judge anybody. It's the Lord's responsibility. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we can't call sin, sin. But it's not our responsibility to sit in judgment. God didn't give you the gavel. He didn't give me the gavel. He didn't give us the gavel. He gave God the gavel, and God is the only one who has the gavel, and it's God who sits in judgment. And when God judges and God inflicts that punishment, it is God who does it. And we must recognize the activity of God and that judgment is going to come and that God is going to do the judging. Number three, we need to reflect the witness of God. The witness of God. Abraham was to reflect a witness of the activity of the Lord. Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. You find that interesting that the Lord said, I shall hide, I, I'm not going to hide what I'm about to do. I'm going to tell Abraham. And, and here's the reason, because Abraham's going to become a great and mighty nation. And not only is he going to become a great, but, but he's going to be a blessing to everybody. I mean, he's, he's, he's saying, Abraham, you are a witness. You are a witness of the blessing of God. Now, what was the blessing that Abraham was to witness of? Notice that he was to be a great and mighty nation. We know that, that Abraham was a witness in his area of the power of God. The reason why he was a, a mighty and a great nation was because of God. I mean, when he went, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we studied when he went and he went to liberate Lot from the five kings that had, had captured him. And he, he had that, that ferocious battle and he defeated those five kings. You remember that? Who did he give glory to? He gave glory to God. I didn't do this in my power, he said. God did it. It was the power of God through me that accomplished this battle that brought about the freedom of Lot. He gave honor and glory to God, and everyone around him knew, don't mess with Abraham because the power of God is available to Abraham. He was a witness to the power of God, but he was also a witness of the purpose of God, and the purpose that God had in displaying his power through Abraham was, notice it said, that he might be a blessing to the nation. Did you know that what God was doing through Abraham was not only futuristic, but it was an immediate purpose? There was a futuristic purpose in God blessing Abraham because it was through Abraham and his seed that we get the Messiah, we get Jesus, our Savior. But also there was an immediate purpose for which God did what he did was because he wanted Abraham to be a witness. That when people ask who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he could say, God did it. God did it. And the blessing that he is to be the nations is a witness not just of the fact that God brought judgment, but the word blessed means also gospel. He was to bring about the good news. Did you know that Abraham was, was commissioned to proclaim the good news of God? What was the good news? How was Abraham saved? How was Abraham saved? By faith. He was saved by grace through faith. Was Abraham saved because he was perfect? We've already studied the fact that he's not perfect. I mean, he blew it when he went to Egypt, remember? And he lied about his wife. And he was kicked out of Egypt. He shouldn't have been in Egypt to begin with because he didn't trust God. And there was a famine. And he moved to Egypt. And then we got there, lied about his wife. And uh, he was kicked out of Egypt. And he had to go back to Canaan. And he repented of his sin and got reconciled with God. And we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, he's going to blow it again. It wasn't because Abraham was perfect. 
But he was saved by grace through faith. If you remember anything about Abraham, he was saved by faith. He was saved because God plucked him out of this sea of lostness and said, I want you to move to Canaan. And by faith, he believed God and he followed the Lord. Faith equals following the Lord. And it was that faith in belief and trust in God that he followed the Lord. Lot saw it. Lot saw it when uh, Abraham took him under his wing after his dad died. Lot saw it when God called him to go to Canaan and he took Lot with him to Canaan. Lot saw it when they got to Canaan, they set up shop and Lot saw Abraham in his humanity when he didn't believe in God and went down to Egypt in defiance of God. And he saw Lot, Lot saw Abram repent of that and go back to Canaan and offer sacrifice. I mean, Lot saw the witness of the faith of Abraham and his trust and belief in God for quite some time. So did Sodom and Gomorrah saw the witness of Abraham. Remember back when uh, Lot was living in Sodom and the five kings came and destroyed and conquered Sodom and Gomorrah and took the spoils and moved north and Abraham took his, his troops and they went up north and they had a battle with the five kings. It was a miraculous, miraculous battle and God gave him the victory. If you remember, the king of Sodom saw Abraham not only give God the glory for the power to defeat the five kings, but he saw Abraham give one-tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, and he saw that acknowledgement of God. This Sodomite king saw the witness of the faith of Abraham even before what we're about to read. So they saw the witness of Abraham. And God wanted to make sure that they continued to see the witness of Abraham because maybe possibly someone would say, well, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham was going to be the witness that God did it. Well, you know, if, if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, what chance do I have as a sinner? I mean, I'm a sinner just like Sodom. What chance do I have? And Abraham could say, hey, you can be saved by grace through faith in Jehovah. Because you see, the only way to overcome sin is by faith through grace. By faith. To be a witness. Notice, fourthly, to receive the will of God. This is really hard, I think, for us in preparing for the judgment to receive the will of God. Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord God may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. God is reminding, wanting Abraham to rethink his call. Abraham, I have plucked you out of lostness. Remember? And now I am commissioning you to do something. I'm commissioning you to lead your family spiritually. I'm commissioning you to lead your family spiritually. What does he want Abraham to do? To teach his children about the way of the Lord. The Lord has a way. What is that way? Two ways. Righteousness and justice, if you look at the text. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. What does that mean, the way of the Lord, righteousness and justice? Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that we see similar 
parallels to what God told Abraham. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, that's righteousness. Abraham, I am commissioning you to make sure that your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, through through the end of your bloodline, that every single one of your children's 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 children loves the Lord with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, that they seek the righteousness of God and also justice. Justice. To love your neighbor as yourself because we're going to see that one of the biggest problems and one of the biggest things that God had against Sodom and Gomorrah was the injustice they were inflicting on others. They were so wicked, they didn't care about life itself. And they inflicted this injustice on the helpless. And God was about to bring the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's commissioning, he's commanding Abraham to teach his children. I ask you, parents, are you teaching your children to fear the Lord? Well, I don't want them to fear the Lord. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when I did something in my house that I knew was wrong, I was was afraid my dad was going to find out. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Come on, give me a witness. You were afraid your dad or your mama, why was that? Judgment's coming, man. You know what I'm talking about? It's coming. I see an absence of that today. Our children don't have a concept anymore about the judgment that's coming when they disobey. And we need to have a healthy respect for God to teach our children that when they don't follow the Lord and they don't live the life that God has called them to live, guess what? God's loving, but he's just. And he will discipline those of us who are rebellious. And notice God's commitment. He said, I will bless you if you will be faithful to me. There's a reward to Abraham if he will do what God has called him to do. And there's always rewards for those of us who are faithful to the call of the Lord. There's a will that God wants for Abraham to do, to teach his children, his children, and his children, his children, so that throughout the generation, they will have a reverence and a respect of the Lord and the ways of the Lord. Now, notice five, he wants Abraham to reconcile the ways of God, to reconcile the ways of God. He's speaking to Abraham to prepare for the coming judgment, to reconcile the ways of God. You know, this is difficult, I think, for most of us because verse 20 said, Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now here's what we need to reconcile. None of us would argue that the ways of God are kind, are loving, are wonderful, are merciful, are forgiving. I mean, he's a loving, forgiving, kind, merciful, gracious God. That's who he is. But not only is he a God of wonders, but he's also a God of wrath. And we need to reconcile the ways of God. God is a just 
God. And God demands that justice be handed down. And because of his judicial system, when we sin, there must be a justice. We, through Christ, have been justified. Because Jesus took upon himself our sin on the cross and died in our place. And he then fulfilled the justice of God. And now through faith in him, he fulfilled the wrath. Did you know that all of the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on the cross? His own son received the full brunt of the wrath of God for your sin and my sin against God. And God met the demands of his justice on that cross. Now through faith in him, we have been justified. Those of us who who have not put our faith and trust in Christ, where is the justice? Except not something that we should become recipients of, the wrath of God. Of God. For God is a loving God, but He provided a sacrifice who took upon Himself that wrath so that we might be saved from our sin. And so He wants Abraham to understand. Notice the accusations against Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice the injustice. He's heard the outcry. He's heard the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the outcry? The outcry is the injustice that's been made. Sodom and Gomorrah is so wicked, they don't care about humanity. They are using humanity for their own wickedness. I don't know about you, but that sounds like America to me. They have devalued humanity to the point where they are abusing people. And God is saying, I have heard the outcry of those that Sodom and Gomorrah has inflicted justice, injustice upon. You know, I think about that. I'm thinking about the silent screams of the babies that are being slaughtered through abortion today. I'm thinking about the children who are partially pulled out of a womb and who are cut up and who are fighting for life itself as they're being butchered by a pagan doctor. And the silent screams that we think no one hears, but God hears. The woman who's being raped by a wicked individual, God hears her cries. By those Christians who have been martyred for the cause of Christ, we may not hear their cries because they're in a distant land, but God hears their cries. God hears the cries of those whom injustice are being inflicted upon because of the wickedness of the culture in which we live. God hears their cries. He heard the cries that were coming from the wickedness that was being inflicted upon those from Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was coming now to put vengeance upon them for the wickedness they had done and the injustice they had brought and the cruelty that they had done to those that were undeserving, who were helpless, and who could not help themselves. That's why he's coming to destroy them. They're heartless, wicked, cruel people. But notice the, not only the injustice, but notice the indifference to God. He says, and their sin. It's interesting, he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. The sin is their indifference to God. That word sin is an interesting word. It means sins of omission and sins of commission. It means sins they deliberately do 
And sins they have no idea they're doing. Sins that they either don't do what God has told them to do or they do the things that God has said not to do because of their sin against God. But notice it says, I'm going to investigate. And we think as we read this text, does God not know what's being done? Absolutely, God already knows. But God is telling Abraham, the reason why I'm going to investigate is because I want you to understand that when you set up your judicial system, your judicial system needs to make sure that you do exactly what I'm doing. You search the facts to determine whether or not the facts are real. He's investigating. He's going down to see himself and send his messengers to investigate firsthand what he has heard and what is being done. And he's saying, Abraham, when I destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to understand, I am a wonderful God, but I'm also a God of wrath. I'm both. And lastly, number six, we need to recommit to wait on God. To recommit to wait on God. Interesting, I like this text, verse 22. So the men turned from there, and they went there, from there and went towards Sodom. They turned. There was a change of direction. I mean, you got Abraham and he's with Jesus and the two angels and they're walking together. And then all of a sudden, the two angels turn towards Sodom. They're on a, a mountain or they're on a hill and they're walking down toward the valley below where Sodom is. Remember, that's where Lot wanted to go was in the green, beautiful valley pastures down below. And so they're walking down below and as they go down, they go on to Sodom. And notice what happens. But Abraham stood before the Lord. He stood before the Lord. What does that mean? I couldn't find a whole lot of commentators who, <laughs> who dared to touch that. I did a little word study and I found a few people who had some interesting ideas. But here's what I've concluded that it means. You remember back when he served the meal two Sundays ago? And after he served the Lord at the table... What did he do? He stood by the Lord. Remember, he stood. He didn't sit at the table. I mean, he was the host, and he was the guest. I mean, the guest, I mean he could have sat, but he, did. he stood by the Lord, and he waited on the Lord. Why? He stood before the Lord. Why? In case the Lord needed anything. He was making himself available to the Lord then, and he's making himself available to the Lord now, I know, Lord, you're on your way to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them. I want to stand before you in hopes that just maybe there's something I can do for you in the meantime. I will wait here until you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, he was going to go investigate he was going to go down and take some time. We know what's going to happen next. He's going to save Lot, and it's going to take a little while. And Abraham's saying, in the meantime, if there's anything I can do, Lord, use me. Use me. Here I am. I wonder, in the meantime, judgment's coming. Are you available? Lord, use me. If there's anything I can do, anyone I can speak to, anything I can give, anywhere I can go, anything I can say, anyone I can warn, use me. I'm completely and totally available to you. I'm here to serve. I'm willing. 
I'm able, I'm ready, I'm listening, I'm attentive, I'm here. As we wrap this up, the question we need to ask ourselves, am I prepared for judgment? Am I prepared? Many of us in here are already born again believers in Jesus. We've already trusted in him as our Savior. And we are no longer going to be condemned. That is true. But we're going to give an account to the Lord. We're going to stand accountable for the lives that we have lived, the investments that we have made, the service that we have rendered, the witness that we have done. We're going to answer to him. And I hope that we will hear what the Apostle Paul was, was hoping to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have run a good race. You have fought a good fight. Now come and receive your reward. But just maybe some of us say, you know what? I'm not quite ready for the Lord to come back just quite yet. Because I'm not as faithful as I need to be. There are thoughts that I've been thinking I should be thinking Feelings I'm feeling I shouldn't be feeling. Characteristics that are unnatural to the likeness of Christ in my life. There's, There's fruit that I've not developed. There's room for improvement. There's things that I can do and change and alter and grow in and become. People I can speak to. Things I've been avoiding. Are you prepared? The Bible says that in the twinkling of an eye, the twinkling of an eye and the last very moment, at least you think he's not going to come back, he will come back at least when you are unaware. What if he were to come back before this service is over? What if you're on your way to lunch in a minute and all of a sudden Jesus came back? What if you were ordering your lunch in a little bit and before the waiter brought you your meal, all of a sudden you were standing before Christ? Are you ready? What do you need to do today to prepare for judgment? Are you willing and ready to stand accountable to the Lord? I'm not asking if you're perfect because none of us are perfect. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. But what about your preparedness? Are you ready? Maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. I know you're not ready. Salvation comes to us the same way it came to Abraham, by faith through grace. And when you put your faith in Christ, you're covered by his grace. And because of that grace, you can be saved from your sin against God, and you can be ready to stand before Jesus. And one of these days when you do, he'll say, why should I let you into my heaven? And what will be your answer? Let's pray.